Blog Talk Radio. Great products, 
great competitive prices. You can't go wrong with them. If you haven't had a chance yet, if you need something of just so much as water bowls, mulch, substrate, um, heating elements, cages, racks, you name it, Rich can get you hooked up. So reach out to Rich. Let him know that Jeff over at Prowlis Radio sent you, and I'm positive you won't be disappointed. But um wanted to uh, give you guys kind of a, um, I guess, a little bit of a, uh, so much, I guess, give you guys an update of what's been going on with me, uh, Godbull Exotics. Um, I decided to <laughs> embark on something that I thought was a little bit more of a uh, trial and error, uh, put some feelers out there type of a deal. Um, I thought I would open up a YouTube channel. Um, I have been inspired by a few folks in the hobby. Um, Brian Barchek's one, um, Dan Maleri's one, uh, Keenan Harkins, another. Um, and I really liked what they were doing. Um, there were some things with each one of them that I thought that maybe I could either improve upon or um, maybe maybe that's not the right word, but put a better, put a twist on it um, that would be more conducive to what I wanted to get across. Um, I really just am over seeing uh, some of the more redundant um, episodes that are out there. So I really wanted to kind of uh, start covering some of my own uh, projects and um, focus on other other keepers of more obscure species. I've got to be honest with you guys, it has been a lot of fun. Um, I had no idea how much fun it would be. And I have no uh, uh, no experience in broadcasting or, or film or anything like that, but it's been a really fun endeavor and one that I think is here to stay. So um, I've been able to really, um, I've got a great support group. Um, my producer is a great guy, a good friend of mine. He's real smart with the camera. He thinks about different things regarding angles and lighting and stuff that I would never think about because I'm just focused on the animals and I'm jazzed about what we're talking about. And he's thinking about what's going to look the coolest for people that are watching the video, which is not something that I know anything about. So um, I'm hoping that we can grow with the, with the episode. If you guys haven't had a chance yet, careers on over to uh, YouTube. Uh, look up Godbold Exotics on YouTube. We've got probably 20-something episodes now that have been uploaded. It's been going for about four or five months, um, and it's kind of starting to uh, take shape, so to speak, and I'm really excited about it. So um, show your support. Make sure you subscribe. Looks like we've got uh, Bill on the line. I'm going to go ahead and bring him on. Bill, you there? I am. How Bill? are you? Good. How are you doing? Yep. You make it a hell of a pitch, man. i got to tell you, if I ever come out with my own line of products, I'm going to go right to you for advertising. <laughs> I appreciate the uh the compliment. <laughs> well done. Well done. So, um, I don't know. If how are things been? Okay, connection kind of sounds weird. Oh, does it? Can you hear me okay? Like, uh, yeah, it's like there's almost like a time lag or something. I'll just have to get used to it. Okay, I can hear you fine on my end. Yeah, okay, I'm good. So, um, 
I guess let's start out with uh, maybe you could, you know, give us a little bit of a of a brief um, explanation of what you work with. I know you have a pretty diverse collection. Seems like most people uh, kind of associate you with having a diverse collection. Um, would you mind chatting yeah. about that for a second? Yeah, not at all. Um, first of all, before anything else, I just I'm I'm honored and gratified that you asked me to do this. Thank you for that honor. I appreciate it. And um, you know, I'm just a regular guy who's been into reptiles for dating myself now 50 years. <clears throat> so this is kind of a cool deal. The way this whole hobby is. Uh, yeah, I'm 59 years old. So I, maybe maybe even 55 years. I think I started keeping ribbon snakes when I was about four years old. Wow. So um, really been around to see this hobby change. That's for sure with the advent of social media. I mean, I got my first big start in exotics um, in the 70s in Arcadia, California. We used to noose lizards for the old Western Zoological Supply, which was the West Coast rival of Glades Herps back in the day, and we would trade them for store credit they were just an import place but we used to get in-house credit and that's how i got my you know we're talking i was in junior high keeping burmese and african rocks and anacondas and eastern indigos you know way before cites way before modern regulations that everyone has to contend with today so um historically i've been doing this my whole life people all of us get asked how long we've been how long well how long have you liked snakes and pretty much as long as I can remember being alive. So um, with that, right now I've reduced my collection quite a bit because I I thought I was going in too many directions. And when it came time every year to cycle things for breeding, I just don't have the facilities to accommodate all the specific needs for too many disparate species. So right now I'm, I don't know if you want numbers. I've got like a trio of Solomon Island ground boas, um, 1.1 Baja rat snakes, and four hatchlings. I've got a group of six Senecolis triaspis, a pair of rhino rats, a pair of Bredley. A Bredley I don't know how everyone pronounces things. Um, I've got 5.11 adult northern emeralds. Still have 11 babies from the last litter in-house. I've got a trio of Corallus Ruschenbergeri, a pair of blackheads, uh, two pair of green Sanzinia, 3.7 Mandarin Sanzinia, 2.2 Madagascan ground boas, a trio of Southern Island ground boas. And that pretty much, the focus of my my building now is Sanzinia and emeralds for the the largest, you know, number of animals I have in my focus for breeding. When you say downsize, that's still surprising because you have a pretty diverse collection still. Yeah, I mean, I I, I got rid of a lot of stuff. I mean, I've always, well, I don't know, I guess for the last 10 or 15 years, I've, I don't know why, but I've always been drawn to the um, species that, quote, have the reputation for being difficult to keep or difficult to breed in captivity. And that's always, I don't know, it's always drawn me to it. Well, I'm going to figure them out. I, I, I think I can figure them out. And I started out breeding way back in the day, like those uh, Calabar burrowing, burrowing pythons. 
and mm-hmm. um, three different species, three different species of boiga. Those were kind of things that were, at the time, tricky for a lot of people. They're really not that hard, but I just like being able, you know, the, and the Sanzinia, of course. Um, when I started buying Sanzinia, I was so broke I'd have to. Buy, I bought most of my adults, original adults, on payment because I couldn't afford to buy them straight up, and they were a lot cheaper then. And um, yeah, just trying the, the whole the whole the whole attraction for me with these is trying to figure them out. You know, just I figure if I get successful breeding, I'm doing everything else right. I think that's the ultimate result of proper husbandry is getting viable litters, whether they be clutches or you know viable babies, whether they're clutches or litters, and having the females recover successfully after the rigors of breeding to go on and reproduce in the future. And um, so that's kind of where my focus is. I, I, I like the Corrales complex a lot. Um, I travel three or four days a week, week in, week out. I'm just not home. So I really can't have, it's not fair to animals that are high maintenance or, you know, tricky incubations, things like that. I, it doesn't suit my lifestyle and it doesn't suit their existence. So I've slowly been moving out of egg layers and trying to stick strictly with live bears and let them do all the work, if you will. Yeah, it's just more no. conducive to, you know, we're down to one kid left at home. He's a freshman at UNLV and then um, my wife's retired 30 years with the Vegas police department and we want to travel. We want to do things. And so I need to have animals that are pretty much congruent in their, in their care requirements. So it's just a lot easier to streamline things. Yeah. But I got to be a big boy about that. I, that. I, I don't. Yeah. And I, I had the Ruschenbergs. I have the, the emeralds. Um, I lack that the annulatus. That's, that's the big glaring hole that I want to get at some point in the future, come hook or crook, trade or purchase. You know, I, I want to get some of those into the group. Um, people always ask me, why don't I do basins? I, I just can't justify the cash. You know, I, even if I have yeah. the cash, I just, there's so, there's so much, there's so many more, there's so much work to be done with norm, with the normal Northern emeralds, if you will, just the Northern emeralds. There's, there's, it's just a gold mine of opportunity to play mad scientist, to hold animals back, to, to breed for desired traits. And that really hasn't been explored yet. And, you know, I, I get how awesome basins are. They're phenomenal animals. But it's just, for me, a matter of simple economics. For the price of one basin, basin I, can, I can get two or three normal, you know, northerns and, and have some fun. Just see what happens. Well, my you know, next so question. It's just a matter of, and I, I just, Yeah. I was going to say my next question was um, <laughs> what what attracted you to Northerns, but you just kind of answered that. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I like arboreals. I always have, you know, the, you know, I bet, you know, the, the Boiga, um, the, uh, the Gonosoma complex, I forgot to mention those, I, <clears throat> um, you know, the red-tailed green rats and the Jansen's rats. I bred those for a few years. I, I, I like arboreal snakes. I don't know. There's, they, they get me. They grab me. And um, with with the northerns, um, they're low maintenance. They're low metabolism. If you like, if I get going too fast or digress, feel free to rein me back in. Um, 
<laughs> my mantra in, in all my care with my animal, my mantra is benign neglect. I think people, in my opinion, and I've been guilty of it, and I, I, I have to force myself to be, you know, but I'm forced to not overthink my collection. I don't overthink my animals, and I therefore don't tinker, uh, intrude, bother them. I, I just, I set them up with a lot of options, whether it's temperatures, elevations, uh, hides if, if applicable, um, and let them let them tell me what they like, and then I just give them more of it, and then I leave them alone. Um, with all those animals, I probably spend, when I go into that room on, on a regular day, you know, with, with no projects in, in mind, I, I may spend 40 minutes going through the room, checking water bowls and spot cleaning and or feeding, and then I'm out of there. I just don't mess with them. And I, I think some of the biggest pitfalls that, that guys get into is overthinking their animals. If you if you stare at something long enough, your brain's going to convince you something's wrong or needs to be tweaked or I, I need to do this, I need to do that. When you're better off, just leave them the heck alone. Be, you know, be confident that you have them set up the way they, they like and be done with it. And then, you know, overfeeding. I, I think um, that's the other – that's the big – I. Most of my animals take forever to mature because, if anything, I underfeed. Um, I just don't think snakes right. evolved to be constantly to be constantly digesting food. You know, someone somewhere has decided that species X Y Z needs to feed every seven to ten days. Well, well, who said so? It's not true, you know. And snakes, like I said, I don't think evolutionarily were designed to be constantly processing food. It's unnatural for them. Even, you know, especially when you're talking about ambush predators like emeralds and brown boas, they may sit there forever waiting for the appropriate size prey item to come by. And that doesn't mean it's going to be a successful hunt. So um, I think if people just slow down on the growth rate of their snakes, don't try to go into breeding season with obese animals, and you'll have much better results. I agree. I, I think that overfeeding is one of the biggest killers it is the silent killer, I think, in the herp hobby. It is, um, correct. I think <laughs> if you've been in this hobby long enough and have had enough animals, most guys have a story, a horror story about waking up and walking into the room and seeing it. When they went to bed, the snake was perfectly healthy, and they wake up and the snake's laying there dead, and they have no idea why. I, I think something just gives out inside, and I have no scientific basis. It's just a hunch. But... You know, like my Madagascan ground boas, the adults, they're, they're big, but I feed them double XL rats, and I feed them seven times a year. It took yeah, I, six years to get to sexual maturity, but they're healthy. They're fine. Yeah, for me, I, I tend to feed on the smaller side. Um, I keep Amazon tree boas, uh, Woma pythons, and um, – Brazilian rainbows, and I don't like offering large meals to anything. Even when I kept chondros exclusively, I did not like to feed oh, large yeah. meals. Um, now, I, I realize that rats are a good option for some species, but for the species I keep, um, at, I, you know, um, I don't really, you know, most of my uh, Wilmas and, and Brazilians are pretty small still, and I'm not I have no intentions of moving them to rats right now. Um, and sometimes yeah. I just let all, I just let my collection go a week without. So 
You know, I rarely oh, feed my males. I feed my males, and pretty much regardless of what species, I feed them maybe once or twice a month. Um, and perfect. it's a small meal. And my females, um, sometimes I let them go a little bit. And sometimes I'll feed them a little bit extra, you know, but um, I try to make it inconsistent because I think that they're in the wild, they're eating inconsistently. Uh, as you said, they're, they're opportunistic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, that kind of segues into, into the northern emeralds. I mean, I've got adult females. I've got a couple that are just – well, one is the one that just gave birth for me is, is the biggest emerald I've ever seen in my limited career. And, I mean, she is enormous, absolutely enormous, and she never gets anything bigger than a jumbo mouse, and it's just one. And I don't feed her, huh. but every 14 to, 14 to 17 days, I never feed large. The only big prey items, like, like I said, the double XL rats for the uh, adult ground boas is because it's more economical. They're, they're big, big snakes. Right. I mean, they're, they're eight foot plus now. And a double XL rat doesn't even make a, a bulge in them. So didn't mean to give the wrong idea, you know, as far as feeding large items infrequently. Most of the time I'm feeding, you know, sticking with emeralds, I've got, I guess, five emeralds that are in the two, two and a half to maybe the three foot range and still, you know, very slender, you know, chondro looking in, in girth and size. And some of those are still on hopper mice. Now, I just don't even bother to do feed you, adults. I, I was going to ask you, do you see, what's the activity like? You, you're feeding them smaller meals. Oh, they're, hunt, they're they're hunting again the next night. I mean, they're not happy. They're not satisfied with it. But I ignore it because you know if if we want to delve into 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 northerns, you know, there's always a specter of regurgitation syndrome in the back of your mind when it comes right. to northern, especially if you have any imported animals. And if you've dealt with the imported animals, you're going to deal with that at some point. So even if you have captive bred animals, it still kind of poisons your, makes you gun shy. So with, with the emeralds, I'm, I'm always feeding smaller than waste. And when people ask me for advice on Facebook messenger and whatnot, I always tell them just feed way smaller than the, than the girth of the snake would visually dictate. And you'll be much better off. You know they're they're going to be hungry, and they're going to be hunting every night. But okay, that's good. You know that's that's fine. And like I've got a male uh, anaconda phase that I'm going to put into the rotation for breeding. Well, I just started this this last past weekend getting things set up, and you know it's taken him forever to get to what I think is is maturity, sexual you know size to breed. But slow is good with emeralds. Slow is really good with emeralds. You just can't be in a hurry with them. They don't. They don't grow rapidly. They're not a fast-growing snake. They have a slow metabolism, and there's no sense trying to tip the apple cart because you get that one puke, and you're really paranoid after that because it'll really set you back. Did you buy yours as adults and, uh, or, or I mean, like wild-caught adults or these captain-born and bred that you've raised up, or do you have both? A mix. Actually, yeah, a mix. I um. The big female, I think you and I chatted about it. Um, the big female I just bred, I found on Craigslist. You know, this guy was 
He'd only had this one snake his whole life, its whole life. I, he couldn't remember when he got it as a baby or as a, as a, as a less than yearling, its origins. I assume it was either probably captive bred or maybe a farm. There, do, there, there is some farming of emeralds, but regardless, the guy had never had it with any other snake. He'd had it for six years. I mean, as far as I was concerned at that point, that's a pretty safe animal. Um, I have, uh, right now I probably, I, I've acclimated and bred three wild caught females that I've never had issues with. I've got two more adult wild caught females that I'll breed this year that I've never had issues with at all. Um, we're talking animals well over five feet, you know, in the 700 gram and over range, if not more. And they still only get small adult mites when I feed them. So that brings me to a but question. I, you know, when um, I, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I wanted to ask you about this with so many, obviously with Northerns, they're, you know, imported in pretty frequently. Um, and sometimes they come in in pretty rough shape, and sometimes they look pretty solid, uh, depending on who you buy them from. Yeah. What it, What is your right. acclimation process in getting these animals um, consistent and to where you feel like they should be good to go? Well, okay. The, um, and you're right. I mean, it's a crapshoot, and you can get animals that look spectacular that will crash really fast. And there's, you know... There's no hard and fast rule. There's plenty of guys out there, probably hundreds of guys out there that have bought wild-caught adult emeralds at, you know, shows and have never had a problem. You know, there's there's so many papers out as to the the causative pathogens of, of the rest of the regurgitation. You know, there's a big train of thought that it's a coccidia-based pathogen. Uh, there's a chlamydia-based pathogen group or maybe a combination of both. Um I, I don't think it's transmissible uh, on an aerosol basis, if you will, atmospherically. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's a contaminated it's a contaminated water bowl. It's a it's a hold one snake and hold another type of transmission. I quarantine any imports in a separate building for 18 months. That's the first thing I should tell. Oh, you. Um, wow. They're not in the yeah. They're not in the sixteen to eighteen months. They're not in they're not in the uh, in the good to go building, if you will. You know my my hard and my solid snakes. I'm, I I don't risk them. Um, but what I do is I I have the I guess I play cl- closet veterinarian, but um, you know it's it's a combination of I don't treat them at first. I get them set up like I said at, at the front of this conversation. Um, and we can go into how I how I set them up as far as temperatures and those kind of things if you like. But I set them up the way I, I feel they need to be set up. I leave them alone, even sometimes to the point where I'll take newspaper over the front of the cage. So there is no more stress, any more stress than them being in captivity is already put on them in the whole shipping and importing and exporting and all that. I just want them to chill. And I don't even try to feed most of them for at least a month. No food for a month, just water. And I just want them to relax and then, um, you know, get them feeding. I don't even worry about treating them internally for two to three months um, because typically 
when people get these imports, they, they seem to do just fine for a while. They can go six, seven, eight months and be cruising along, and all of a sudden, bam, they, they puke, and they try to feed them again, and they puke again, and then it's just long, slow death. And it, it is long, and it is slow, and it's, it's a horrible thing to watch. Um, at, at that point, once I know they're, they're solid and I don't see any real excessive signs of any kind of problem, treat them with flagell. Um, azithromycin and Baytril. And the thing that people forget to do when they treat animals for internal parasites is if you dump a bunch of antiprotozoal medicine in them and these kind of things, all of a sudden now they've got this massive die-off of parasites in their intestinal tract, and you can lose a snake to sepsis just from blood poisoning from having all those decomposing parasites in their digestive tract. So you've got to chase you've got to chase the worming medicine with some antibiotics so they don't die of secondary infection. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah, no, it does. Do you use uh, Panicure as well? I do. I'm sorry. Yes, I do use Panicure. I use Flagyl, and then I I run Azithromycin and Baetril behind it orally. And what I typically do gotcha. is, you know, obviously. Obviously, weigh the snake, you know, dose out the meds, and I use the uh, ball tip feeding, you know, dosing syringes. And the first, the first dose they get right down the throat, and the second dose they get, I wait seven days and do it again. And then I wait about two to three weeks, and then I put it right inside the gut of a feeder item, the last dose. I just, and this is, I have no scientific, it's just something I do. My rationale, yeah, yeah. my 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 thinking is that my, my thinking is that that last dose in a prey item is less intrusive and it's a much more metered uh, dispersal in the system as the animal digests the the item. And then typically That's after correct. that, it's just on a, on an annual basis. On an annual basis, I'll do the same thing with the rodent um, once a year, and I've really had good success with it. I really have. But it all de- also it really depends on whom you get your animals from to begin with. It really does. And yeah. you know, there's been a lot of discussion. Um, one paper has a lot of merit, I think, is that that these pathogens that they that they that they harbor are actually transmitted from birds that are in close proximity to these snakes at the exporters or in the exporters facility. And whether it jumps from the birds to the snakes, or if the guys at the exporter are actually feeding them all the birds that die before they're they're shipped into the pet trade, who knows? But I, I've not had any losses to regurg syndrome in oh at least six seven years now. And back in the day, hmm. and, you know, back in the day it was just, you know, I, I got a couple. And honestly, I got played. There's no doubt about it. I was I was a lot more ignorant than I am now, and looking at things through rose-colored lenses. I, I didn't know enough to know enough back then, let's put it that way, like I do now. And, right. um, you know, I see a lot of these, I see a lot of people um, picking up cheap emeralds at, at shows 250, 350 bucks a piece, and they they buy the snake, and then now, they, and I think this goes for a lot of, a lot of people, they, they buy the snake having done no research, and then they try to get Play catch up after the fact, and 
you know, emerald tree boas are not the snakes to do that with. You know, you can do that with a corn snake or a king snake, but, you know, emeralds are really solid snakes. They're, they're hardy snakes. They're, um, you know, a good captive bred emerald, in my personal opinion, is a whole lot less work than a chondro python is. I think they're, they're more tolerant of keeper mistakes. They're less sensitive to environmental changes. Um, you know, and I'll tell you from an aggression standpoint, they're a lot easier to deal with because they're a whole lot slower than chondros when it comes to striking. They're just not nearly as fast, and they can't cover near the space. Chondros are like, you know, laser beams, and they can hit you from across the cage, and you didn't even think they were looking at you. Pretty slow, methodical. Um, you know exactly. They're, they're like a, a, a guard dog. You know exactly when you, where you stand with, with the animal when you open the door. And during the day, you can do anything you want to in the cage. It's only really the only time you got to worry about an emerald is at night or if you disturb them on the perch while they're sleeping. Right. That's funny you say that because I've heard a few people that have worked with both chondros and emeralds say that, you know, this, you know, I guess poor reputation that they have of being difficult is just completely bogus that they are super yeah. hardy and more uh, tolerant of keeper error, easier to keep. Um so you're like the third or fourth person I've heard say that. Because you know, and you know, all I, all I can share in this venue is is what's worked for me, as far as you know, husbandry and my experiences, things that I've you know observed on my own. That that's, you know, everyone's got their own specific ways of doing things and their own observations, and it's kind of gratifying to hear that because I know you know a lot of I think, like Boiga and a lot of the snakes that have been imported in, in just mass quantities is most people's experience with emeralds has been fresh, wild-caught adults. You know, yeah. and that's, you know, this last litter this last litter I had, I mean, I can tell, there, there's there's litter personalities. I mean, this last litter I had, they were just feisty, mean, just amazingly aggressive little shits compared to the litters I've had in the past. And two weeks later, they're, they're all puppy dog tame. You can't, you know, you can't even make them bite. Super, super heavy uh, defensive, defensive reactions at first, and they, and they're, they were, they were born 30% bigger than any litter I've had in the past. Just huge babies, and now they're, they're, you know, they're completely tame. And, and I have some adults. I, I would never free handle an emerald with, with complete abandon. That's for sure, because um, you just don't want to get bit by one. And I have some that are absolutely evil incarnate and you open up the cage at night and they're coming right out at your face. And I have some that are okay. You know, I hold them with, with care if I do take them out, which is rare, but most of the time I just take them out on hooks and do what I need to do and just put them back and we part as friends. So I want to kind of get into your husbandry a little bit and see how you keep them. Um, I know there's, okay. you know, plenty of different ways to skin the cat on that. But uh, how do you how do you sure. keep your animals? Uh, what what works what I what works for me is, um, I think, even for up to five foot animals, you know, as you and I have talked in the past, I, I have a boatload of those bars cages, the herb cages right. by design. I think that's a, okay. You know, I have. 
um, I think 16 or 17 of those 24 foot square cages, which I love. I absolutely think you and I were talking, you're asking about, do they discolor and things like that in the past? Um, they're lightweight. Mm-hmm. They've got great side ventilation. They, you know, they have great side ventilation that you can adjust. Um, stackable, durable. I just love them. Um, you can house adult emeralds in there forever, except for breeding, which we'll, I'll get into in a second. Um, I have rated heat panels from the top down. I use Herbstat controllers for all of my different banks of cages. Um, one thing people I see way often is way too big a perch in the cage for the snake. And I think the chondro people feel the same way. Um, even with my six foot plus emeralds, the biggest diameter perch I have in their cages is three quarters of an inch thick. Um, you know, typically I'll go, you know, uh, smaller than that. I, they don't really like big fat perches. It's not natural for them. I, um, have on average four to five perches in each cage representing different temperature gradients. Obviously I have the probe for the herbstat on the perch closest to the panel underneath the panel, about eight inches, eight to 10 inches. Then I have them in various descending order and lateral, you know, descending away from the panel and laterally away from the panel. If that makes, you know, vertically and laterally, if you will. And, I like to have that hot spot at the top, 83 to 84 max. And with the different perches, it allows them to get down to as low as 79 if they want to, and they frequently do. And I have a lot of greenery because I just got to thinking a couple of years ago, you know, even in the wild, snakes to hang out in the wide open exposed. And emeralds aren't sitting on the outer branches of trees exposed to the sunlight with no foliage around them. They're tucked up underneath the greenery. So what I, I thought was I'll just start hanging a lot of green and like a wall around certain portions of the perches at each elevation, kind of like an arboreal hide, something, a visual barrier between the front of the cage and the animal. And to an animal, they all, they spend 90% of their time tucked up out of view up in that little circle of greenery on their perch. They come out at night from those Mm. little fortresses to hunt, but they always retreat. Rarely do I see them out exposed. So I think, I think it adds a little bit of security to them. I really do. For sure. And I really haven't focused on that except for like, except, you know, except for the last, I think a lot of my designs come from spending too much time driving (laughs) in my truck for work by myself. You know, it's a lot of time to, to just think, and so I, I come up with this weird shit. I try it, and if, if it seems to work, I, I give them more of it. And I think that's a really good thing that anyone who listens to this that, that may not have availed themselves of is to add a lot more. I just ordered about 60 more strands. Of, you can buy it really cheap on Amazon and just uh, air it out and soak it so it gets the plastic smell out of it. But, you know, a lot, plus I think, you know, when you – we'll go – all right, let me get back back on track. So add a lot of greenery. Um, a water bowl on the bottom that covers at least 40% of the bottom of the, of the cage. I, I've never had an emerald yet that won't drink from a water bowl on the ground. I don't have any elevated water bowls. I, I don't think they're necessary. I, I, honestly, for some of my snakes, it's a little dangerous to have to reach in there and try to yank a 
elevated water bowl out of a perch. I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. It's just more intrusion than I want to do. And they all drink just fine. They you come down at night and they're, they're down there drinking, no problem. Um, unlike chondros, emeralds do not benefit from static, constant humidity. You know, chondros reside below the canopy where it's dark, it's dank. There's not a whole lot of air movement. It's very humid and it's warm. You know, emeralds are pretty much in or right above the canopy. And it's, I mean, I've climbed up, you know, we go to Panama and I've climbed up pretty high up looking for those bromeliad boas and you get above that canopy and it's remarkably cooler. It's way drier and it's constant airflow all the time. So I spray my emeralds on Sundays or, you know, pick a day. It peaks at about 70% humidity and literally I let them dry out the rest of the week and repeat it again the next week. So they go from 70 for a peak and then over over the consecutive following days, it, they dry out, they dry out, and then, I, then the cycle starts again. And um, I have two big fans blowing in my room, oscillating fans mounted to the wall that keep the air moving in that room all the time. And, you know, living in Vegas, humidity is always a challenge. Maintaining any kind of humidity is always a challenge, but they seem to do just fine with, I think it's, a, you know, I just did a little paper for a guy and, if you keep them like a chondro, you're going to get respiratory issues at some point. There's no doubt about it. And um, if you want to say, if, if, is that, I'm trying to think of what else, you know, like no, eating, well, I always feed. You, you, go ahead. You, you don't miss the actual animal, do you? Or do you miss the substrate or yeah. uh, you said you miss once a week? No, I, you I miss, miss the animal. animal. Yeah, okay. I miss, yeah. I miss the animal. Um, some cages I have a little substrate in. I use orchid bark or cypress mulch, but uh, a lot of times they'll hit that prey item and go right to the ground with it. So over time, I'm, I'm doing away with substrate entirely. I just have bare, you know, bare cages bottoms. It's easier to clean. Uh, I don't run the risk of them ingesting any of the material. And with that big water bowl covering 40% of the bottom of the cage, I use like um I go to the dollar store and you can get the kitty litter pans for a buck or the, their black oil, oil, small oil change pans. They're probably about, I don't know, 14 inches in diameter. And um, mm-hmm. those will help keep a lot of the ambient humidity up. They'll keep a lot of the ambient humidity up. And um, honestly, when you have a water bowl covering 40% of the bottom of the cage, pretty good chance they're going to shit right in the water bowl. So you're going to change the water bowl. Oh, I, I should talk about that too. Emeralds do better with fresh water. There's no doubt about it. They, if water sits in the bowl for four or five days, it just sits there. But it, the days you change the water bowl, I always sanitize the bowls, um, put fresh water in there almost every time they're down that night drinking out of that fresh water. So they will benefit from frequent water changes, more so than probably a lot of other species. So, um, yeah, but I spray the cage. I spray the walls, the animal. Um, I have had some that will come right out and drink from the sprayer, but not too often, you know, not too often. I don't like to spray them a whole lot when, if they start shaking their head and twitching their head, I know I'm just pissing them off. So I quit. Have you had issues um, with, uh, like bowel movements? Uh, I know some, some, uh, no. emerald keepers say they need to put them in like a rain chamber and whatnot to get them to. Have a bowel movement. Never, 
Now, I, I've never had a bowel movement issue. I've never had a stuck shed, even though, like I said, I spray once a week and um, let them dry out. I always get, you know, nice, clean, one-piece sheds, maybe two-piece. Um, never – there's been I, – and I can't remember the, the mantra of, you know, feed, feed three times, wait for a dump before you feed the fourth time. I, I've never adhered to that. I just – but then again, I'm not feeding on a regular prescribed basis either. It's always random, and right. I think the randomness of the of the meals uh, allows them to adjust, and it's not an unnatural thing. But I've never had any – one thing else that's different between, at least for me and the people I've spoken to over the years, the one thing you don't incur with emeralds that you often do with chondros are prolapses, whether it's hemipenes or rectums. You just don't seem to see that in emeralds. Hmm. And I think that's a great thing. Oh, for sure. And again, you know, <laughs> super stressful. You know, I, I've ha- I've had I've had condos in the past, and I I've had that. I've had the prolapse rectum, and it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. And I, you know, at the time, there's a gazillion trains of thought as to what what causes that as well. But that's probably a conversation for someone who knows a whole lot more about condos than I do. <laughs> so, what are, I uh, I can't remember if you touched on this, but what what are the temperature regimen that you that you keep on just yeah. non breeding? So non breeding temperature regimen. You know, you know, hot spot up high, eighty three to eighty four degrees, with a cage big enough. You know, with a temperature gun, laser gun, with a cage big enough for them to access gradients down to like seventy nine. That's all they need. Twenty four seven, or do you and offer anyone? Did you keep? Uh, no, I don't offer night drop. You know, I, I think okay. with the herb stats, I just have it in there like point two degrees, just because it's easier to to do that than to turn the night drop feature off. So yeah, it's like a you know, I don't, I don't. My my room, you know, vacillates six seven degrees. Just so I guess there's an inherent six seven degree night drop at night. Okay, but you know it, it doesn't bother them. I think uh, you know I've had back when I had when I first moved to that that place and had those portable air conditioners three years ago. There were times that that room got ninety four degrees, and they were just fine. Now it wasn't prolonged. I was sitting there running out there every six hours, freaking out, spraying them down to cool them off. But there was no ill effect, even though it got that hot. So they're a lot more durable than people think. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think that most yeah, those are snakes are a lot more durable than what people think. <laughs> Wait, that's Correct. That, yeah, that's... and you know that goes back to my you know my my benign neglect mantra is do the research, set them up, and be confident in how you had them set up, and just leave them alone. They'll be fine. They you know, they really will. <clears throat> I'm not saying, you know, ignore them. Keep an eye on, you know, the, the certain, you know, telltale things that we all look for respiratory-wise and whatnot. But by and large, you know, snakes are kind of boring. If they're, if they're doing well and they're, they're happy and they're content, you know, unless, you're, unless you've got a colony of coach with or something that are constantly moving around, most snakes are kind of boring. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Yeah, and I, I think so, that's why people – tend to overfeed 
tend to overfeed is because it's fun. Yeah, they get. Uh, it seems like boredom takes over. It's like um, it's like the person that just can't leave well enough alone. They get so bored with everything. Bingo. You know, they they want to keep tweaking stuff and keep fixing stuff, and it's like yes, it's like the it's like the guy who has the car that he's 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 got his car done perfect and he's restored it and he can't leave well enough alone. It's like well now that it's it's where where it needs to be, it's working fine, it looks great. He needs to keep doing other things to it, keep tweaking it, keep doing this, keep doing that and yep. start adding yep. aftermarket parts and then it and then the the car goes to shit and it doesn't work right. Um I feel like people yeah, well, in the hurt cross the do point the same and over diminishing returns. Right. Absolutely. Right. You know, you, 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 it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a law of diminishing returns. Um, you know, for me, the fun time of year is, you know, you know, breeding. I just moved all my Sanzinia into the other building because it's non-heated and they, they can get nice and chilly. And, um, you know, when I get back home this weekend, I'll dial in the, all the emeralds. And because I've got – I think I'm breeding like um, seven female Sanzinia this year and – Seven female emeralds this year, so this will be this will be my my most um, aggressive, boldest breeding season ever, as far as boas go. So it's uh, this is this is it's a pain in the ass time of the year, but it's also exciting. You know, once you start putting them together, and if you want to, we were talking about about cage sizing. If you want to switch into breeding real quick, um, as far as how I cycle my emeralds, we can do that too. I I do. I I did want to touch on breeding and cage size for pairs and stuff like that. Um, so this, I guess, is a good time to get into that. Count on your males pretty much fasting once from about the minute you put them in with a female. They're, they're going to be done eating for four to six months. I have yet to have a male interested in food until, you know, I start typically, depending on the winters in Vegas, this year is a little late. So, um I'm just now starting. Well, I'm get too far ahead of myself. You know, obviously make sure your males and females have adequate body weight before you go into breeding. Um, I'm assuming most of the people that are going to hear this will understand what I mean about that. Um, I typically the two big triggers for breeding of the day and the and the and the night drop. I don't do anything with humidity. I'll just get that out of the way right now. I do not do anything humidity manipulation-wise for my emeralds. I start uh, this week. I'll drop, you know, the lights in the room. I don't have indiv- individual caging in my lo- in my uh, cages. I just have overhead lights. I'll, I'll I drop I drop the day cycle by an hour, which makes the night an hour longer. Um, they've been sitting at 83, 84 degrees. I'm going to drop them down to 79, and the nighttime drop will start at 5, and we'll be over at 8 in the morning, and then the heat will come back on, and uh, I'll let that go for a couple weeks, then I'll drop again by an hour, I'll drop that daytime high about 4 degrees, and... uh, the heat comes on at the same time, 8 o'clock in the morning, but the heat is not on for the entire day portion of the day. The heat is only on for like seven hours. What, I, what I'm trying to get is 
progressively longer, cooler nights, followed by progressively shorter, warm periods during the day. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. I think it's probably important to preface that those longer, cooler nights are not wet, cooler nights <laughs> for the nope. for the listeners. Nope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, there's, there's, yeah, because, and, and now when they get to their peak, and this, I, I won't start putting the males in until about the third or fourth week. And what I do is, um, and this is way off track, but it, I think it bears noting, there was a study done a few years back on the brown tree, sh- the, the brown tree snake in, on Guam that they've been trying to eradicate forever. And yeah. uh, what is it, Boiga irregularis, I think? And uh, yes. one thing that researchers noted that the females do not begin to ovulate until the presence of a male is detected. Now I'll let that resonate for a second. And I got to thinking about all the time I spend field herping and in early spring in the desert, you come across a Western, a female Atrox, Western diamondback rattlesnake curled up underneath the creosote bush Nine out of ten times, if you walk concentric circles away from her, you're going to find one, if not two, if not three males holed up somewhere just sitting there waiting. They're just biding their time waiting. But she's aware that they're there. She knows they're there. So about three years ago with my Sanzinia and the Emeralds, I'll put the male in just for about 20 minutes, just 20, 30 minutes, let him crawl over her, let him, let him tongue her a little bit. Even if he starts to, to uh, pro, you know, spur her a little bit, then I pull him out. I just want to get the kettle started. That's it. And then I continue dropping temps, and I won't put him back in again for another week to 10 days for serious pairings. But that makes a huge difference in the receptiveness of the female, as opposed to just putting him in blind and she's not ready for him and oftentimes you're going to get an adverse reaction where you think, oh, they're not compatible. Well, you just caught her off guard. She wasn't ready yet. So I do that right. kind of preemptory pairing just, just, to get, just to get his scent in there, maybe get the pheromone started a little bit. At least I think it's a nice, before you get serious, a nice trigger to employ. And it, I, it really has worked a lot, really has worked well. It has worked very well for me. So, I, you know, I'll start cooling them this week. I will actually allow my emeralds to cycle down to 68 degrees for about 7 to 10 days. A lot of guys don't do that. They're a little leery of getting them that chilly. I've had no adverse reactions. As long as they get a 4 to 5-hour warm-up during the day at about 74 degrees, they're fine. They're, they're great. And then, so if I start now, I'll breed – all the way through March, and I like to try to get one good hookup. Oh, um, if they don't lock up within 24 hours, I pull the mail and wait a couple of days and try again. If they lock up and it's a good lock, as soon as they're done, I pull the mail for a couple, two or three days. Um, I think you get better, and I, I did it with my barneck scrubs back in the day and a lot of other stuff. I have found if you leave them together, the amorosity of that's even a word. Male's amorous response is lessened if you just leave him in there. But if you pull him for a few days and put him back in, he acts like he's never seen her before in his life, and they go right back to business. 
Plus, it makes it a lot easier to chart and note successful copulations that way. And I, right. you know, two years ago, I only had two years ago, I only had one adult male that I cycled with two females, and it was a real juggling act because I'd put them in with one female, they'd lock up, I'd pull them out for a couple of days, put them in with another female, they'd lock up, pull them out for a couple of days, and, and then repeat back to the, so each female was ended up going, you know, four to five, six days between pairings, and they both had ginormous litters, no problem. So the males can do it. You just you know, need to make sure you give them a little break in between. And I just think it, it like I said, it, it, it stimulates the male to be horny, and it makes it easier for you as a, as a keeper to note successful copulations, and then you know, you know when to start looking for the ovulations and then the post-ovulatory shed, and then you can start counting days for when to expect your babies. Um, Real quick, though, before you move on, I I did have sure. So I know it's different for everyone depending on where they live. But you're in, you're in Nevada, right? So uh, when do you start introducing, and when do you start seeing like ovulations and whatnot? And maybe you can get into gestation and birth. But I I kind of want to give folks a little bit of a seasonal uh, gauge of when to to start pairing animals. Um, if you know, or at least alter yeah. it to, to wherever they're at. You know, I can't remember where I left my keys 10 minutes ago, so it's hard for me to regurgitate. But fortunately, I took pretty good notes last year, and I can pull them up on my iPad and kind of go through the the dates here. Um, in Vegas, typically, there's no sense trying to – I'm not going to spend a, a, a ton – a ton of money trying to air condition the whole building, you know, just to cycle 10 or 12 animals. It's easier for me to wait till the ambience outside are my friend. So, um, this, you know, typically anywhere from the middle of of November to Thanksgiving is when I start this year. We really haven't had any cold weather till like four days ago. It started getting cold. So I'm a little bit late. Um, this year, but it, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It'll just, it just means that instead of having October babies, maybe or early October babies, I'll just have, you know, later, later October babies, because like uh, this last litter I had, they were born 156 days after the post ovulatory shed. But I started, let me see here, here. I started cycling my emeralds down the sec uh, the set right now last year right about now I only paired one and they first lockup was January the 25th so they had been pretty much cycling down for a month before I paired them okay. And then you and you just so they, got babies, you know, and they, what was it, like a month ago? Uh, yeah, they were born uh, on September 9th, 14. So um, looking at the notes, and, and I, again, um, as much as I travel, these are just the notes I took when I was home, I happened to be home. But, you know, the first, the first lockup was January the 25th. 
and they, you know, I paired them again on the sec- on the third of February, the twelfth of February, and then she ovulated um, on the. Let me see here. Twenty seventh. Then she had her post ovulation shed on the seventh, and then you know, 156 days later. But the thing I do, emeralds are gravid. You need a longer cage as well as a taller cage. I move them to a four-foot long cage with the heat panel all the way over on one end, which I set at 86 degrees. And they can go all the way to the other end of the cage where it's only about 79 to 82 degrees. They can bake the babies, you know, the embryos if they want to, or they can move away when they want to, and they spend 50-50. You know, they'll, they'll go three or four days glued to the heat, then they'll move off for three or four days or somewhere in between. But the key is to, you know, give them, give them the options and let them decide what they need. They know better than we do. So if she feels the need to heat up, she can heat up as opposed to just cranking a whole cage to 86 degrees and the snake is just stuck there. Yeah, I think that uh, that options are definitely the best way to go. Uh, thermal gradients um, seems to be, you know, the best way to go. I, You know, I can't speak to emeralds because I've never kept them, but I know my Amazons, it's like a routine. They will go right under the heat. Um, there's a certain stage of... of uh, gestation where they're it's like a daily right. daily right. routine where they're going right under the heat and they're going away from the heat and you can pretty much count on that sure. them going through that routine the same time of day every day I would imagine northern, uh, the emeralds are the same yeah see that's cool to hear because you know I I, I have a couple of Amazons now as you know and I you know I'm gonna I'm gonna start playing around with those I've always liked them a lot and they're just you know, they're they're nice adjunct to the, to the emeralds and the Ruschenbergs, and um, again, you know that's another very very cool species that are, you know, when it comes to being hardy, I mean they're amazingly hardy animals, and people are doing some, you you know you you yourself are doing some really really you know Keith McPeak, a lot of guys are doing some really really cool exciting things with those animals, and you know the behavior's got to be pretty parallel. Yeah, I mean, I'm underappreciated for so many years. The only difference between these guys is, and what I am hearing for you with the Northerns is you can pretty much feed Amazons as much as you want. You're not going to have any problems with uh, no, obesity no, or right. anything like that's that. Right. No. No, they're incredible. I mean, they, they you know, we, we could have a just a bro conversation another day about, you know, and again, I think they're an animal that has suffered from just, you know, the thousands of, you know, imported jungle phase and blah, blah, blah. No one really took the time to unlock some of these cool things that they have, you know, potential-wise inside, genetic potential. Sky's the limit right. all this, you know, cool. You know, I'm, I'm breeding I'm, this year, and it's going to be really exciting whether it, it does it, anything magical comes out of it, but I'm going to be breeding a, an anaconda phase emerald to a patternless female, and then I've got two anaconda phase emeralds in on breeding alone, then I'll pair with my, my anaconda male and it'll be really neat to see as just a locality thing. You know, what, you know, is 50% going to be anaconda, especially with the, with the patternless one, are there going to be any patternless babies? There's a lot of fun stuff to be done down the road that people are just now 
you know, really starting to get, hey, you know, this, these are kind of cool things to play with. They really are. And well, the, um, hobby, the hobby's coming full circle, I think. I think that a lot of these animals were just kind of disregarded as kind of just garbage snakes for a long time. And even some of the animals, they just didn't want to deal with them. They just thought they were paying the ass and they weren't worth working with. Um, they wouldn't live very much. And now you see people that have actually invested some time and some effort. And then as long as, they, as well as the Amazon, you're the seeing days. some really, really cool stuff. You know, that, that, and you hit on the key things, you know, time, the time and, 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 you know, just taking the time to, and the investment, whether it's monetary, just the investment in your time and your, your care and your concern and, and seeing it to fruition and not giving up and just, you know, relishing how cool that, that, you know, that, that satisfaction, like I, I made a post the other day, you know, these baby emeralds, that's another thing. And baby emeralds are born maybe three times bigger than baby chondros. And um, typically, you know, typically they're pretty darn easy to get started right off the bat. Um, so they're not nearly the pains. That, I mean, they're just, condos are just so tiny, they scare me. They're, golly, they're tiny little babies. And um, they are very I just small. think as, as more and more, oh, but as, you know, same with the, with the Amazons, as, as more and more, you know, U.S. captive-born animals become available to the hobby, you know, let's face it, at some point, you know, this, this whole wild animal importation is going to stop. You know, every year it gets less and less, and one of these days these countries' borders are just going to shut. And the importation and trafficking and well, – not trafficking, but, you know, the, 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 the wild-collected wild animal trade is going to disappear. It can't go on forever. I hope so. Because you know, what's you know, in, we have so many, you know, we have so many different bloodlines of these animals in the country now that it's it's kind of like, why do we need to keep bringing them in? Well, yeah, because there's a market. People are still willing to plop down two fifty to three hundred for an emerald in a, in a in a deli cup, jammed in you know adult emerald jammed into a deli cup in a reptile show. Yeah, and that's, that's just true. you know that's a disaster waiting to happen. It's just yeah, it, you know, it's just but I mean. It's, the press is going to get more and more and more negative. You know, there's so many, you know, uh, how many ordinances are there going up around the country? Just it's making it harder and harder for us just to keep the animals that we have. Scary. It really is. But I just, I, you know, I just, I can tell you from the the, the feedback and the questions I get from people, and um, uh, and I, I'm always happy to share. I, I, I I'm no expert I'll, like I said all I can do is share what's what's worked for me what and I'm happy to share what hasn't worked for me there's you know I've made a lot of mistakes and um hindsight's always 2020 but y- you have to learn as long as you learn from them and keep going and, and you know never be too smart to not take advice from other people ever you know I I've learned a lot through some guys that are you know what one thing um a, a dear friend of mine Rick Staub in California I don't know if you know Rick um just a brilliant, brilliant human being. And one thing I'd never considered, but we were herping in Arizona and we were driving and he said, you know, people talk about uh, temperature gradients for this, that, and the other. He goes, but do we ever stop to think about what the animal needs when it's digesting a meal? Temperatures it needs to hunt, what temperatures it needs to mate. Do we ever think about what an animal needs when it's digesting a meal. He goes, that's something I think most people forget about. 
And that just blew the top off my head right then. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. shit, now you've given me something else to obsess over. But, I, you know, if you think about it and you, you extrapolate from that, it's true. A lot of snakes will eat and then want to retreat somewhere, whether it's cool, secluded because they're vulnerable, and to peacefully digest a meal, not out in the open. I'd never thought of it before. You know what I've, I've but you, you know, so – I used to breed dogs as well as working with snakes. And one thing that oh, one lesson do. that I I'm learned <laughs> one lesson I learned was that animals are not that different than humans in some ways. And you just mentioned something that made me think of people. So you've just had a full meal and you've got a, a stomach full of food. Do you want to go do you feel like you're at your prime to defend yourself if needed or that you can get away as, as quick as possible if you needed to, to flee. No, nope. you're, you're thinking, I want to recline like, I want to digest some food. Right. I want a recliner, a football game and a, and a remote control. Exactly. <laughs> and, and honey, honey, I love you, but don't talk to me right now. I really, I really don't have an opinion. I don't give a shit right now. Yeah. I yeah, agree. No comment on yeah. That and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that I think that's that's generic across the gender the gender spectrum right there. Right. But right. Right. then again, then again, you know, you know, unless you have a walk-in cage for every one of your snakes, I mean, we're limited in how many options we can actually give them in a three-foot cage. You know what I mean? There's only so much you can you can provide. But at, at least I only throw that out there just you know to stir up people's consciousness, maybe to think about things because you know if you have terrestrial snakes that have a hide box. That's exactly where they're going after they eat. It is. You never see a snake basking sure. on the road. You know, you never see a snake when you're when you're night cruising or, or walking. You, you never see a snake with a big food bolus in it just laying out there for the world to see. So, you know, I think that kind of goes back to that thing with the emeralds as far as hanging that greenery. Um, again, any snake you encounter in the wild, if you give it a chance, it'll take the escape avenue every time. It will. I don't care if it's a rattlesnake, you know, very, very, maybe a king cobra caught out in the open, but most snakes will take the opportunity to retreat if you give it to them. So why not give it to them in the cages? I, I, I just, you know, I see these emeralds and things that are just out in the open underneath a dome lamp and it's just beating down on them. And it can't be, the more secure a snake feels, the, the happier it is. And, um, I don't hold, you know, even if I didn't, you know, even the snakes I have that aren't going to bite my face off, I don't hold any, I don't hold any of my snakes ever. Whether only, only if I have to do a wholesale cleaning or for some reason I need to take them out of the cage. Other than that, I never handle my snakes because my personal philosophy is even if a snake's not shitting on you or biting you when you're holding it, it's still stressing it out big time because it's not natural. So I don't do it. Yeah, I I typically don't take mine out unless it's for something educational. Uh, we have kids come over to the house sometimes, yeah. and, um, sure. and and I'll kind of let them get their first interaction with some of my animals. Or when I'm cleaning cages, I like to inspect them to see if you know, see if there's anything that looks awry. But other than that, yep. I typically don't take them out and watch TV with them. <laughs> now you're. Yeah, you're not rollerblading in the park with your six foot boa around your neck. I'm not rollerblading at all. 
<laughs> Maybe a bad. bad if you want me to be, there, if you want me to be perfectly honest. <laughs> um. <laughs> I just pulled that out of my ass. Um, but yeah. you know, again, it's just I. That's just my benign neglect, and it, all it is is my personal philosophy. Everyone, you know, there can be people that do things polar opposite of me and have every bit of same success that I've had that I've been blessed with, and that you know that's fine. Like I said, all I can share is is my own history and my own philosophies. Um, I don't know at all. I'm always learning. I'm always picking guys' brains or, um, I'm, you know, you know, never be your, never quit being your own harshest critic. But again, that goes back to what, you, you know, you and I touched upon about five times in this conversation. Just don't overthink them. You know, I've worked right. with a few guys online right now that, that have gotten emeralds lately and, you know, and I'll put it in all caps. You're obsessing. Knock it off. Walk away. Yeah. This, you know, this need to tinker is just, you know, adding to the the, the, the demise, potential demise of the animal. Just be happy with what you got. You know, enjoy it. You know, just be elated. But just, you know, let them be and let them let them be what God made them to be. For God's sake. Right. Yeah. And I think um, micromanaging anything is is never a good recipe. And so, um, no, it's not healthy for you, and it's not healthy for the snake. Right. Well, you know, and, you, um, you've produced these guys. What is it like? Three years in a row? Two years in a row? Consecutively? Uh, five. 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 Okay. Well, I think five. So yeah, if, five years. I've three different, three different females so far. It, and and I that breeding recipe has been the same. Your breeding yeah. recipe's been the same pretty yeah. much, right? Yeah. Yep. I haven't unwavered, unwavering it. Um, you know, the, the shortened days, shorter warm periods during the days, longer, progressively cooler nights. Um, you know, pair, put the mail in for a little, you know, little uh, fluffing, if you will, to use a porn term, just to get things get things rolling you know, 30 minutes to an hour, a week or two before you really start pairing in earnest, the female knows that there's a male in the area. And um, I think, like, uh, yeah, last year, I didn't do that with one of my females, a big Suriname female. And I, I put the male in there and always watch, always watch at first just to see what the female's reaction is going to be. And um, she was not happy about him being in there at all. She was, she was fleeing. She was, you know, trying to escape. And so I pulled him, and I never did put him back in. I Don't ask me now why. I probably missed out on a, on a litter, but that's okay, too, because she looks great, and she'll go this year. But um, I just think it's better than catching the female flat-footed. All of a sudden, she, you know, from, you know, 11 months, she's been curled up by herself in a cage, you know, ignorant to the world, and all of a sudden the door opens, and there's a snake crawling all over her. It's not... And also, since they're in a cage, eliminated the flea option. She doesn't have anywhere to go. In the wild, if they're not ready, right. they leave. They keep moving. And the male's got to, you know, the male's got to chase them. But during the chase, she's getting acclimated to his presence. So I think it's really important just to do a little brief introductory, just let the female know that this, there's a dude out there that's got some plans for her down the road. And I think it, yeah. it, it, really, it really triggers things. And... Um, if you want to, for people that are blessed with, with litters or, or by a, 
a newborn baby from someone. Um, I don't even try to feed the babies for a month. They are born with such incredible body weight. They're just girthy. They're fat. I think they really have a lot of uh, nutrition, and they're really not interested. Some will always break the mold and feed, you know, two weeks out of the out of the mom, but I always wait about a month and um, you get much better responses. And I had that video up with that zip tie method that Harlan Wall put out a few years ago. And I I embraced that wholeheartedly and it works like a charm. You know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. uh, You, uh, well, for those that listen are listening, you, you take a, a thawed pinky and you cut a slit over the tail and you just subcutaneous slit with an exacto knife or a razor blade, and you run a very small zip tie. He used bamboo splinters. I tried to split bamboo, and it was like, screw this. So I just used zip ties and run a zip tie right up to the base of the head. Then I superheat the pinky. When I mean superheat, I put it under a heat lamp. And when I put the pinky on the inside of my wrist where there's no hair, it feels hot to the touch. And then you can reach in there with that zip tie. You don't have the smell of tongs. You don't have that big, blunt, tongy-looking thing holding a pinky. You're just sticking the zip tie in there. And even if you hold perfectly still, the weight of that pinky on the end of that zip tie is just a nice, gentle undulation, and it just seems to drive them nuts. They grab it every time. It's a great way because with baby snakes, you're always fighting against that. Do they want to eat or they're shy? Then they go from being shy, they go into defensive mode. And once they start striking at something defensively, I always just shut it down for an hour and come back because you lost them at that point. If they're just afraid for their lives, they're not interested in eating. Right. So the zip tie method, and I'll I'll send you the video. I have a video of one eating with that zip tie method. I'll shoot it to you later so, you you know, anyone wants it, they they can get it. Or people that know me that are listening or what have you down the road, I'm happy to share it. Um, it's a really yeah, nice you way could, to, to get, and it works for it works for a ton of different species. Not, it's not, you know, it's. Go ahead. I was going to say you could post it on Corrales Radio on the on the Facebook page if you'd oh. like. Just post it on the wall. Yeah, yeah, happy to share it. It, it was, you know, like I said, I didn't. Just, you know, Harlan put it up there with he was he was like trisecting little bamboo, those little bamboo rods into, and I uh, cut my finger off trying to split those things with a razor blade so I just I have a big tub of zip ties in my snake room and I just screw this I'll try one of these and it, it just worked it just worked really well and um, I've noticed with the babies like when we were in Panama for the last two weeks I fed them before I left a couple of them really weren't interested in eating I came back after two weeks and 11 out of 11 ate in 10 seconds flat they can go a couple of weeks without eating, no problem. No problem. Um, just as an anecdote, I had an imported Suriname female. Well, I have her still. Uh, a buddy of mine sourced for me at a show in Ohio about three years ago. Gorgeous animal. Got it for me. He's kind of like my, my roving broker. And I got her to the house and absolutely refused to eat. And it was so docile, I couldn't even get this thing. I tried every trick I know, rats, mice, hamsters, you know, every quail, anything I could think of. I couldn't even get her to strike at something defensively. Just by, you know, tapping her with it, I, would, I was thinking maybe I'd get her to, to strike defensively. 
and she'd snag it with a tooth and just morph into constriction mode and eat it. Nothing, nothing. That snake went eight months without eating, never lost any measurable body weight whatsoever. After about eight months, I walked by the cage, and she was hanging down in the ambush pose for the first time. I threw a live small rat in there, and she nailed it and has never looked back. So they can go a long time without eating and do just fine. For people that have snakes that go off feed or freak out because the snake's been eating every 10 days for the last year and all of a sudden it's quit eating, don't worry about it. It'll eat when it gets hungry. Yeah, I've noticed that they're much girthier than other arboreal snakes, especially when compared to chondros. They are. Much more. And I'm really, you know, I had that those that true operation birds that I really enjoy. They're very cool little snakes, very cool little snakes. You know, they actually get the longest of all of them, and I can't wait for them to grow up and see what they turn into. They're very cool. This has been a real treat, uh, Bill. I, you know, um, I think there's been a lot of good information that you've been able to share, and um, I, that's kind of the reason I even do the show is just because I want information out there for everybody. And, you know, there's obviously different well, I ways you, to... Well, I commend you for this. I appreciate it. It's a, it's a labor of love. <laughs> no, I really do it. Yeah, obviously it is. And it, it's a really it's a really admirable thing that you've undertaken here. And, and I think your YouTube thing um, is very, very cool. Really, really, really well done. And I'm, I'm, I apologize for not opining about that before now. And, you know, I can throw it out there. A lot of guys have found me on Facebook Messenger and, and, and I'm... I'm like I said, I, all I can share is what's, what's worked for me and, and what I've learned. And, you know, if I can if I can help anybody else out, I'm always willing to take the time. No problem. Awesome. Well, um, I did have one last question I wanted to ask you, and this was sure. from somebody. This is actually somebody, another keeper emailed or messaged this question about emeralds. So I wanted to, to hit on it before we close. But um, he said that sure. um, obviously – people know that uh, emeralds have uh, disproportionately long uh, teeth. And he was wondering if you've seen any of your emeralds that have actually teeth that kind of are growing outside of the mouth, almost like a, the way it was described is no. almost a snaggle tooth or they were just misplaced, the tooth was? Like a, cro- like a crocodile or something? Yeah, kind of like out, yeah, outside. Um. No, not not you know. You, occasionally, you'll, yeah, occasionally you'll see a misalignment where there's a, maybe a tooth hanging out for twenty or thirty minutes that they rectify with a big yawn, you know, and they realign their jaws. Um, right. But no, I've never seen one that you know permanently cruise around with a with a, with you know exposed teeth like that. No. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. Well, I, I don't. I, hopefully, I'm not butchering the question. I it was, you know. Obviously, they could probably explain it better than I could, but uh, I figured I'd try and ask sure. and take a stab at it. So, no, and um, I, I don't think you know we didn't touch, but as far as like health issues and things, um, just you know we touched we touched on the regurg, which is which is the number one, um, you know, if you do get a stuck shed, pretty much like you know. With emeralds, you just got to be careful if they're mean because you do not. When we talked about teeth, I think it's pretty well known that 
they have the longest teeth overall of pretty much any snake on the planet, if you will. And, you know, a big adult emerald can do some serious damage, you know, not just from bleeding, but, you know, you could be looking at even ligament damage if they clamp down on your arm, um, especially the big, big females with those ginormous heads. And um, so if you do have to soak one to assist with a, a stuck shed, you can do it like any other snake, but just be careful when you go through the uh, the peeling process. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh but you know they, I would but, not. you know by and large you know they're you know I have I have some that are pure evil but most of them are are you know relatively okay as long as you go slow you know you know if you do have to handle them I just recommend using a hook and just give them the respect they deserve and you'll be fine. Right. Well, um I don't know if I I feel like we could talk for another hour on these guys, uh, especially with some of the health issues that you had kind of briefly touched on, but um, I just don't have the time for it yeah. uh, on this one. I, yeah, I'm I sitting in the probably... hotel room in, King, in Kingman, Arizona. I got I got all the time in the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, uh, you, so you, you mentioned that the um, – someone a, a very brief explanation of, th- of things to look for in a sick animal since there are so many imports let's cover that real quick and then let's, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. let's wrap it up sure like if you're going to a show or you're at a pet store or what have you or someone right, sends you pictures right. of an animal they're selling yep. Um, yep. first, first no go is indented heads emeralds should have big fat heads with almost like two ass cheeks on either side of their head. Does that make sense? Nice inflated yeah, lobes, you know, bulges, bulge, you know, cranial bulges, if you will, on both sides, you know, of the head. If you see a snake with indented heads where that, uh, the very, very, where the spine joins the cranium, if you see two bones sticking up, like at the start of the neck, looking from the nose over the head of the snake down its length, if you see those bones stick up, run away. That's a bad sign. That usually, that, that, that signifies to me that that snake's a puker right then and there. If you can see ribs plainly down the length of the snake, walk away. Uh, indented tails, you know, below the vent, walk away. Um, obviously any gaping, um, the obvious mites and things like that, but I'm just talking about a physical assessment of a snake. If, if you see anything, you know, dull, dull skin, they should have a nice shiny patina to them and they're, and, and should be velvety when you, when they, if you hold them and feel them, they, you shouldn't really be able to feel the ribs or see the ribs. That's an underweight. if not snake that might have a regurge issue because if they start puking, their heads get thin, get that defecated or desiccated. Not, no, that's not the right term. Um, indented, emaciated. They lose body weight. They lose. They lose mass. They lose mass on their heads real fast if they start puking. And then, it, then it goes laterally down the sides, and you'll see the ribs pretty quickly. So it's a telltale sign that that's a no bueno animal. Leave it alone. And. Uh, 
it should be spunky. People will say, oh, I picked up this, you know, I was handling this emerald and snake show at a reptile show, and it was just a puppy dog. You know, it really shouldn't be. I'm sorry to say, but it really shouldn't be. That tells like me it's kind of lethargic. Uh, oh, yeah. And it, and and really, um, maybe it's just me, but I, I, I prefer a snake that's trying to eat my face because it's got the wherewithal, the health to be angry. You know, a sick snake is going to be more lethargic, maybe not respond as defensively and um, – but if you yeah, but if you if you see those indents or that top of the spine sticking up, you know, indent below the tail where it just looks you know what I'm talking about on the lateral side of the tail where it looks kind of sucked in and then mm-hmm. visible ribs all the way down the snake, visible ribs all an emerald a really healthy emerald should be very plump, very plump. Even the younger ones will be they they should be rotund, they should have a nice tubular look to them where you can see no visible ribs, no spine. Um, they're, they're not an Amazon. You know, Amazons, I don't think you can make an Amazon fat, can you? They're just always so, I, you know, whipcord thin. I haven't. But an emerald should look like that. that. <laughs> yeah. No. And, 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 but an emerald is, you know, quite opposite. You know, the Ruschenbergs and, and the, and the Amazons are, are, are long, slender, whipcord thin snakes. You know, emeralds are a lot girthier, a lot stockier. There's no doubt about it. And you want a nice, you want one that maybe looks like it's someone took a, you know, an air hose and inflated it a little bit all the way down, nice and plump. And well, really, you know, if, just, anyone... if you want to just, 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 to su- just to summarize, you know, set them up with, Temperatures ranging from 84 to 79 with access to different temperatures in between. You know, put a screen up of greens they can hide behind. You know, don't over, don't have constant static humidity. Have a cage that's well ventilated. Perches that are smaller diameter than you'd really think a snake that big would need. And really don't feed but every two weeks. And feed smaller than, smaller items than you would normally think a snake that size would, would want and you'll eliminate a lot of potential problems forever. Well, there you have it. <laughs> so, if anybody we'll wants you, to see Then we'll get you some one of these days. Oh, gosh, yeah. They are kind of at the top of my list right now. Just a list that's going to have to stay a, li- stay a list for a while. It's going to have to wait. <laughs> but, you but, know, um, and in, in closing... You know, a good healthy emerald that you set up right and and you follow those pretty simple parameters and they're undemanding of your time. They're easy to keep. You know, you can have other snakes that maybe require more more attention, but you know, emeralds once like once you do that, you can pretty much forget about them and and have a really really and they live a long. You know, they they can live sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years, no problem. So I'm just giving you that, Jeff, as a personal dig to get you, yeah, just to get get you off your ass to get some one of these days. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. (laughs) (laughs) It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. I just and just need to take the plunge. And like like I said, anybody you know anybody out there that that wants to pick my brain or if I if I glossed over stuff too fast. 
um, has a particular situation, they can find me on Facebook and stuff, and I'm happy to help as best I can. Yeah, I wanted to get your uh, your contact info out there before we close. That's just Bill Hughes. You know, I'm in I'm in all the Corallis um, desert oaky reptiles. I have a little um, that's OKIE because I am an Oklahoma State University alumni and I am a diehard honk for all things Oklahoma State related. Um, <laughs> yeah, does. Desert Oki Reptiles or, or just Bill Hughes. You know, I'm out of Las Vegas. Uh, I'm Sanzinia pages and the Corrales pages is where you'll find me. Okay. Now, is there a project on the horizon that you're uh, wanting to get into you haven't gotten into yet? Um, I'm going to add, I'm adding another pair of Ruschenbergs probably in two weeks and then Really, I want to get some annulated tree boas just to round out the whole Corrales complex for me. Um, and I'll be a happy camp. You know, I always say I'm I'm done. I'm you know, we, famous last words, right? But I no new right. no new projects as far as adding no new no I'm I'm sticking pretty much with with what I listed at the front end of the you know, as far as my collection. Um, my my passion will remain all things Sanzinia and all things emeralds, uh, the annulated and the Ruschenbergs. And, I, you know, and maybe, maybe I do need a male Amazon, a choice male Amazon tree ball one of these days. But my females are pretty young, so I've got a couple of years, to, you know, before I have to get serious about that. But I think that's, that's you know, with the Sanzinia and the Corrales complex, I'm I'm pretty happy guy. Um, at the end, when, At the end of the day, the only egg layers I'll have in my building are going to be the black-headed pythons, and only because they've been a lifelong dream of mine since I was about 10 years old. I never thought I'd get them. Right. Cool. And they're, you know, that's another topic. But, you know, I, I like uh, obscure snakes that are relatively easy to care for once you set them up and don't require a whole lot of attention afterwards. Because, you know, I'm like you, you know, my, my priority list is I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm an employee, and then I just happen to like snakes. So I, I, that, that's, those are, that's my order of importance in life. The, you know, the snakes are kind of low on the totem pole. Right. Yeah, that's, you know, they kind of give me the, the break from all the mundane things in life, you know. They're, they're a little bit of a therapeutic well, stressor. Yeah, and you know, and my building is is my is my man cave. I mean, that's that's the one place in my life that my wife's not entitled to have an opinion. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, it's she's never even been out there. She's never even stepped foot in it, not one time. That's not funny. not because there's like a there's, it's not like there's a no women allowed sign on the door. She just she just knows that's my thing, and she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand it, but it's important to me, so she tolerates it, and that's exactly the way I want it. It's perfect. That's and she supports me as best she can, but, yeah, you know, and the, the only rule is no snakes in the house, in the main house. So I just, you know, every once in a while I'll come in with, a, like, when I have a litter of emeralds, I'll, I'll bring in, and even she'll say, you know, I have to admit those are kind of pretty. That's about as much praise as I'm going to get. But you'll take it. 
I don't, you know, I don't need it. It's okay, but that's that's my. I can go out there and the whole world can be collapsing. It seems like, and I can go out there and get busy and lose three hours sticking around, and I'm good. I'm good to go when I come out. It's therapy. That's it. Therapy. Well, that's cool, Bill. Yeah. I appreciate I appreciate you coming on. Um, anybody that wants Anytime. to get a hold of Bill, uh, check check him out on Facebook, and. Uh, yeah. You know, Bill, uh, um, I really appreciate it, man. We'll definitely talk soon. All right, but thanks for having me. I appreciate the honor. All right, pal. All right, take care. You as well. Bye bye. All right, guys. Thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in. That was a really fun episode. We got into some little nuances regarding northern emerald tree bullet that I haven't uh, touched on before with some of the prior guests. So that was really good uh, getting Bill on. He's had some consecutive uh, success with the species, and I'm hoping that uh, this information can be applied to other keepers out there so that, you know, more people can work with these guys and, and you know, we can have more success with uh, some of these imported animals that come in you know, diversify the gene pool, whatnot. But um, as always, guys, uh, Krauss Radio has been brought to you by Reptile Basics Incorporated. Uh, check RBI out. If you haven't, they're on Facebook, or you can check them out on the web. Let them know that I sent you over at Krauss Radio, and uh, he'll get you all squared away regardless of how large or small your collection is. Um, but until next time, you guys have been watching Krauss Radio.